Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Now, when you listen to the podcast today, I suppose you were thinking, this is going to be a podcast about uh, preaching or maybe predestination or maybe some deep exegetical quagmire we find ourselves in. But actually, no. Uh, this is a podcast about one of the most popular, I would say, pervasive phenomena in our culture today, sports. And my conversation partner is my friend and colleague, Dr. Doug Webster. Welcome, Doug, to the Beeson Podcast. Dr. George, thanks for the invitation to speak to the issue. Now, I know we've done this podcast with you before on other themes, and just to remind people who may not have heard that, you've been a part of our Beeson faculty since 2007. You came to us from San Diego, California, where you were the pastor for many years of the First Presbyterian Church there. Uh, you're a pastor, you're a writer, you're a preacher, you're a practitioner of ministry in all kinds of ways. Uh, here at Beeson, you serve as professor of pastoral theology and Christian preaching. Now, that's Doug Webster. Uh, none of that tells me you would be interested in the question of sports. So why are you? Well, Dr. George, I think it's mainly because I'm a pastor at heart. And sport plays such a huge role in the lives of most Americans that you can't help but be pastoring a congregation and butting up against the real issues that affect people's lives. And that led me to preach about it, to think about it. I wrote a short piece and because of that was invited into this group of about 11 academics, mainly athletic directors, coaches, all involved in secondary level education for Christians. And I became involved in that group, and um, this led to this declaration. We want to talk about a, a new declaration on sport and Christianity, which has just been released a, bit, a little over a month. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want to ask you yourself, uh, you're not an athlete, a professional athlete, although you look very athletic. Um, and uh, so your own involvement in sport as a person, as growing up, as a, as a young fellow. How, what was that like? I think a biblical view of the gospel allows for a theology of play. And uh, we uh, follow an incarnate living God, made our bodies, made us to play, to run, um, to give us a, a physical rhythm, uh, to stay in shape, uh, to eat well, to play hard, to enjoy that. And I think that that's um, uh, an hour a day of exercise has been very much a part of my life for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's been really important. I enjoy watching sports. Uh, I enjoy uh, having athletic friends who play sports. You can't, ha you can't live in Alabama without having a friend who's an avid uh, football fan. That's true. Um, so uh, there's a lot of reasons to look at this subject from a Christian point yeah. of view. Well, I'm not as enthusiastic as you are. Uh, I'm only interested in two sports, really, uh, tennis and baseball. The others I kind of am aware of, as you say. You cannot not be aware of that in Alabama. But as you were coming through school, did you play sports at uh, intervarsity level? Or? 
I played baseball in high school. Well, you are on the side of the angels, a baseball uh, player. Now, the view you just articulated about sport as being integral in some ways, certainly compatible with a Christian life and calling, is not always the view of sport that has uh, been put forth in the Christian uh, tradition. Some of the Puritans were very much against sport, though others did use sport. Uh, there, there's a there's a vein of asceticism that looks askew on this kind of activity as something that's not really worthy of our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. You don't accept that, do you? There's a certain form of pietism that might see sport in any form as competing with true spirituality. I'd rather see true spirituality as finding expression in sport, in business. Um, in law, in medicine. And so like all of those spheres of cultural life need to be examined from a Christian point of view as avenues of expressing true spirituality. But uh, you do have to admit that, that sports in a way is very different from some of those like medicine or law or pursuing even business in some ways because it is such a pervasive cultural phenomenon reality in our lives. And that may lead us to talk about this declaration on sport and Christianity that you and your 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 fellow uh, team may, m- members drew up. Talk about that declaration. Uh, kind of you mentioned the study group. You've been thinking about this, batting this idea around. Why did you think a declaration was necessary to talk about this? Christians have been really interested in sport, Fellowship of Christian Athletes and other parachurch ministry organizations, but they've often used sport as a platform for evangelism. We're taking this a step deeper. Yes, the the athlete, the Christian athlete, ought to be able to testify to Jesus Christ in and through their sports activities. But sports at times needs to be examined, uh, looking at competition, for example, in sports. I think that the uh, declaration argues that there there is a place for sort of a, a playful antagonism. Uh, and that kind of competition is healthy and it's good. But we all know that playful antagonism can turn fairly quickly into something that's fairly uh, self-absorbed and uh, competing against the opponent, not as an image bearer of God, but as somebody that is, uh, is, somebody that is um, minimized and dehumanized in the process of the competition. Uh, you have a, in the Declaration, there are a number of statements in the Declaration. We won't read the entire Declaration, but I, I want to focus in particular on number three for a moment, where you say what I think is a very strong statement, a little bit of a surprising statement to me. Sport can be a means of spiritual formation. Now, I can understand in a way what you've just been saying. Uh, there is a kind of holistic human experience that is tested out and in some ways expanded, extended through engagement in sport. But spiritual formation, we usually think of that as involving prayer, uh, the study of the Bible, um, those kinds of disciplines of the Christian faith that draw us closer to Christ and deepen. But you're saying sport also should be a discipline of the spiritual life in a way. Are you not? I am. Let me just pick up on number three and and sort of finish that thought. Christians acknowledge the bodily dimension of spirituality and practice faith in and through sport as embodied people. So like all aesthetic endeavors, sport can remind us that God is the source of all strength and grace and beauty of movement. 
You know, you and I grew up about the same time. And in our household on Sunday morning, we went to church. Sunday night, we went to church. And Sunday afternoon was to be spent in quiet. We did not play ball on Sunday afternoon. No. And, uh, and yet, as I became a pastor and had a family, playing ball, going for a run, playing tennis, going for a swim was something that became pretty important on Sunday afternoon. I found it as a great tension reliever for a, a morning that was packed with work and ministry, meaningful ministry and worship, but I kind of needed that physical release. And I think we, we are bodies, minds, and souls, and the bodies do need to exercise. And so in that sense, sport, I do think, plays a real important part in the rhythms of grace in the Christian's life. And the next statement in the Declaration takes it in some ways to a deeper theological uh, point. Of, you say sport can glorify God. Now, here at Beeson, you know, we have a saying. It's actually not ours. I think Johann Sebastian Bach used it on all of his music, and it's uh, ri- written in golden letters, gold leaf letters on our organ, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And you're, you're claiming in this Declaration uh, that, Sports also are a means by which God can be glorified. Not only can we as God's people be built up in our life, but God himself uh, can receive glory from how we engage in sports. But there's also a prophetic dimension to particularly this issue of glory. That particular point in the Declaration goes on to say, success in sport competition can help garner public acclaim for oneself, one's team, one's community, or one's country. These forms of glory should not be confused with bringing glory to God. So it's not just the athlete saying to herself or himself, I'm going to glorify God by spending six hours in the gym pumping iron, and I'm going to glorify God by leaving my heart on the playing field. No, we glorify God in the ways that he has designated to be glorified. God is much more concerned about the practice of the Sermon on the Mount on the playing field than necessarily scoring a touchdown. So we glorify God in the way that he has designated for us to glorify God. Now, we've talked about the very positive dimensions of sports, spiritual formation, growth in Christ, the glory of God. But we also know that sport can be and has been and often is misused in ways that do not serve these ends. And the Declaration speaks very, I won't say bluntly, but forthrightly, clearly about this. Can you talk a little bit about that dimension? Idolatry, I think, is one of the American church's greatest concerns right now, not just in sport, but in so many areas of life, the body which we've talked about caring for, can so easily become the focus and fixation of attention in the Christian's life, whether it's uh, outward attractiveness or being in shape. And that can become a substitute, almost in competition with worship of God. I pastored a church in Bloomington, Indiana, at the height of Bobby Knight's basketball fame. And when IU played Purdue on a Sunday afternoon, Oh, it was hard to have worship on Sunday morning. The congregation was filled with um, red uh, IU shirts, and the moment you said the benediction, they were out the door into assembly hall. That kind of competition for the worship of God is, is something real and something that does need to be addressed by the Christian. 
I hear very few people calling that idolatry. Now, as you mentioned, we live in Alabama, and Auburn, Alabama is, you know, those, those are our, certainly two of our great uh, idolatrous possibilities, let's put it that way, kindly. And yet, uh, I've experienced the same thing, preaching on Sunday after a big game, whether it's Auburn, Alabama, or something else. Half the congregation is elated. Half the congregation is depressed. Everyone's mind. The preacher's got to tell a joke or two about the game or about the sports. And it seems to me, in a way, very distracting to the worship of God, the glory of God. And yet, is there a way that can be somehow incorporated, brought into the scope of a public worship of God that's not idolatrous. It seems to me the temptation is so great to move in that direction because this is the air we breathe. One of my Doctor of Ministry students shared with me a story. He was watching the Alabama-Auburn game this past year when Auburn came from behind in the last few seconds to beat Alabama. He was watching with his eight-year-old son in his living room. The eight-year-old was devastated, broke into tears, could not be consoled. And my student friend, father, put his arms around his his son and began to explain to him, look, this is just a game. It's football. It's just a game. And you've got to man up on this. See it as a sport. Now, as he was telling me this story, another student was explaining to me that he has known grown men pull over to the side of the road, listening on the radio to an Alabama game, and when they've lost, actually get out of the car and throw up. It means so much to so many people. This father put, uh, after talking with his son, prayed with his son that his son would be helped to put this in perspective. Mm. And then a couple weeks later, on this eight-year-old's baseball, um, a baseball player on his own team faced a loss, and all the rest of the team was lamenting this loss, and the eight-year-old was going among his teammates saying, you got to man up. Mm. This is just baseball. <laughs> and in a way, I, you know, that father made it a teachable moment. Yeah. And if parents would realize that this is an opportunity for spiritual formation, right there watching a ball game, putting it in perspective, in life's perspective, that would be very helpful. That's great. You know, my son Christian, he's a theological professor as we are now, but when he was growing up, he loved soccer. That was his sport. And I'm a soccer fan, too. I'd have to add that to tennis and baseball. I, I enjoy watching soccer and following it a little bit. And Christian had a team. It, it was it was a team, a local team, just kids. But uh, they had a coach who was actually from Nigeria who had played on the, on the World Cup team several years before. Wonderful Christian man. And he would use the the event, the, the team, the, the, the game as a way of reminding them of just what you're talking about. We do this in exercise of our faith, and it's not an end in itself. And so he would he would pray with them. He was a very devout Christian man. And when the team lost, he would have a discussion about what it means to lose and what it means to win, too, and how that shapes your relationship with one another as a part of two opposing teams. One of the things the Declaration says uh, that I like very much, it's number nine in the Declaration, God does not favor one player or team over another. Now, let me ask you a pastoral question, Pastor Webster. Is it ever appropriate to pray that God would give victory to your team over another? Well, that's a good question. 
And it's interesting that number nine has been the one that probably we've talked about the most since the declaration was first posted. Why don't you just read all of number nine? That's a fascinating paragraph. God does not favor one player or team over another. And what's under discussion right now, and by the time people hear this podcast, it will be decided, I think we're moving toward changing that line to God does not show favoritism. In a Christian view of sport, God is acknowledged as father of all who compete. All players, coaches, and fans, regardless of team affiliation, are created in the image of God and are deserving of Christian goodwill, kindness, and love. God should not be portrayed as favoring one competitor over another. When the culture of sport encourages us to think of our opponents as less than human, less honorable, less deserving of Christian love, or less loved by God than ourselves, it is a sign that sport has gone awry and is not serving its divine purpose. So I would caution praying at any time that your team wins. Mm. And I think that would take a lot of the wrong kind of passion out of the game itself. That's the temptation to idolatry that you identified earlier. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. That may be a test for some Christians because how deeply involved we are in hoping and cheering on our team. And in a way, that's a proper thing to do. But there is this line we have to be very cautious about, I think, in in elevating anything creaturely to the level of the creator. That's what idolatry is. Chap Clark teaches um, youth ministries at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he says very few high school students now are playing athlete, um athletics with a view toward uh, play and friendship and camaraderie. By that point in their sports career, they are playing with the ambition to win, to excel, to get the scholarship. And he regrets that. He feels that we've lost that sense of play, lost that sense of team camaraderie. We've made sports into something that is uh, more than what it was really designed to be, and that's going younger and younger uh, down the ages. I don't know if you want to comment on this or not. Uh, This is not so directly in the uh, declaration, but the role of sports in higher education today. Now, we have a football team and a number of teams here at Sanford University where we live uh, to my knowledge, all carried on, uh, you know, with with good intention and with, without falling into the extremes. But in many, many universities, especially the large universities in our culture today, sports are a major, major driver of of the school. And I wonder if you think about that in terms of its impact on forming young minds and young lives for the future. When you frame it that way, it almost seems that the issue has gotten bigger than sport itself. It's become an industry, and an industry in which a lot of the benefits that we've talked about here regarding sport is lost, and it distorts the university life, I think. I I would take a pretty strong and prophetic view, a Jeremiah view, if you will, to the role of sport in, uh, in college campuses and universities. All you have to do is follow the money. Yeah. In looking at that particular issue, I think, and the distortion of the the scholar athlete uh, in so many cases I think is is something that really does need to be examined and yet sport in some ways, even on an international 
uh, scope because it's not just an American phenomenon. Of course, you have soccer is maybe the, the most popular game or sport in the world. Uh, you have the Olympics that we've, we've witnessed. And those seem to me do have good potential for bringing people of very disparate cultures and backgrounds together in a common endeavor that can be worthy and that can be a bridge to better understanding. Though they too are, I'm sure, subject to these same abuses we've been talking about. So to think of sport as not just a American cultural thing, but as an international phenomenon of our time, not only our time, you can go back to the, the Greeks and the Romans, but certainly a major, uh, I think industry's not too wrong of a word to say about it in terms of the money-making capacity with potential for great good and great harm. It's very paradoxical. If you watch the Brazil-Germany World Cup 2014 game, at the beginning when the players walk out hand-in-hand with children and the anthems are played, and there's a wonderful sense of the international camaraderie uh, that's present, but that Germany handed Brazil a a humiliating defeat, seven to one. Yeah, and it's almost like the the esteem of the whole nation is riding on a soccer game, and that's where I think it becomes something that's that's wrong. You feel like saying to Brazil, "Look, it's only a game," <laughs> without being dismissive of the value of sport, but it is only a game. You know, when that game happened this past summer, I happened to be traveling abroad with a person from Brazil. He was very, of course, uh, enthused about Brazil being in the, in the final game. And when Brazil was humiliated, I think is not too strong of a word by the German team, 7-1, to one, almost unheard of at that level of soccer, that sort of score, he just hung his head and said, oh, this is just, we're just ashamed. I mean, there's a sense of being devastated at a level that in some ways was surprising to me because so much was invested in it and so much of the national identity in a way seemed to be invested in it. Well, my daughter-in-law is Brazilian and she was watching the game in my living room. So I was able to (laughs) say it's only a game. (laughs) Well, our time is almost over, Doug, but I'm going to read the final paragraph, which in some ways is a summary of this whole statement, Declaration of Sport and Christian Life, and have you comment on it. Sport is powerful. Sport inspires us with displays of grit and grace. Competitive drama moves us in ways that few other forms of entertainment do. Watching sport can be a means of celebrating God's creation and goodness, leading to a spirit of hope and joy. Left unchecked, passion can lead to obsession. The power of sport has the potential to cloud spiritual discernment and invite both idolatry and the neglect of self, family, and church. The Apostle Paul challenged believers, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The best way to put sports in its true place and to overcome whatever false devotion it may represent, be it idolatry or an inordinate obsession or a materialistic indulgence or a fixation of life, is by dwelling on the positive and fulfilling good that God has built into life. In the Spirit and to the glory of the Father, Christ calls us to recover the lost meaning and the true enjoyment of a theology of play, the fun of competition, the camaraderie of community. By practicing Jesus' kingdom ethic, we can discover the value of sports intensity without ultimacy, 
We can be freed up to embrace the joy of the game. We can accept the Apostles' challenge. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And I love what Paul said in Ephesians. Figure out what will please Christ and then do it. Mm, That's great. Doug, I want to thank you for being involved in drafting this Declaration on Sporting Christianity, you and your colleagues. And I would encourage everyone to, first of all, read, get a copy and read this declaration. And if you can feel in your heart that you uh, support it, then sign the declaration. And how can folks get the declaration and sign it if they wish to do so? You can find it on the Internet, lowercase sport and Christianity, all one word, sportandchristianity.com. And it would be great for you to look it over, and if you agree with it, sign the declaration. Thank you very much, Dr. George. Thank you, Doug. God bless you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.